Our scripture reading tonight comes from the book of John, chapter 16, verses 5 through 15. Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes... He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment, in regard to sin because men do not believe in me, in regard to righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and in regard to judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. We are stepping into a series, a 10-week series, where we are going to be coming out of the book of Acts. Uh, We are calling this series Acts Lessons from the Early Church. And if you um, have around you, you see one of these journals. Hopefully you have one of these near you. They are actually a gift for you. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to begin to, to use this in your quiet time. Because... Not only do we want to just come and hear God speak to us on Wednesday nights, but we want God to speak to us every day of the week. Now, there's a couple of options for you. I'm going to let you choose. You can read the book of Acts every week for the next 10 weeks if you commit to reading a minimum of four chapters a day. How many? Anybody know how many chapters there are in Acts? 28? Right? 28 divided by 7 is? Any accountants in here? 24 divided by? (laughs) 28 divided by (laughs) 7? It's four chapters a day. You can work with me. All right, we got this. All right, four chapters a day. You can read the book of Acts every week for the next 10 weeks, and you will be better for it. Or if you're like, Ben, there's no way I'm doing that. I got my reading plan. You're not going to get me off my reading plan. All right, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. Every week, the week... Like tonight, I'm going to tell you where we're going to be next week. And what I would ask you to do is that you read that chapter at least three to four times before you get here next week. Next week, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. And I would love for you to go ahead and start reading in Acts chapter 2 because this is an opportunity for us to get into God's Word. This is what I'm going to be preaching out of. This is where we're going to be. And you have it. No excuse. So think about this. Why the book of Acts? If, if you're not new to the church scene, you have undoubtedly read or studied the book of Acts. It is one of those go-to places. What we see in the book of Acts is we see the birth of the local church. Uh, we're going to learn a lot about how and how they moved and how they worked. And so many times when we read the book of Acts, we start to see this idea that these people are amazing. Look at what Paul did. Look at what Peter did. Look at what Philip did. And Stephen, he was willing to die for his faith. 
But what we forget is that in the midst of the, this movement, this movement of God that we now call the early, early church, it was filled with normal people. Normal people. So these stories that you read are just like you and me. The God that they serve is what made them amazing. Because they were wholly devoted to who God is. And I am crazy enough to believe that the same God that worked in the books of, book of Acts is the same God that is at work today. Anybody else there with me? He's not changed. Scripture tells us that God does not change. So in the midst of their normalcy, they met God and entered into a relationship with their Creator and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to understand, upon their conversion, they did not become superhuman, nor did they become super-Christians. They became spirit-filled believers and they lived out their life to serve Christ. What would it look like if we were spirit-filled believers that began to live our life out for Christ? Could it look like the book of Acts? Now, every time that I read a book of the Bible or any book, I try to go through and find some threads that you can follow that I can follow, that normally in any type of writing, there are things that you can begin to pick out and it's there along the way. So tonight, I want to just kind of introduce you to about four threads that you can trace. And what I would love for you to do as you're reading the book of Acts, four chapters a day, every day of the week, so you can read 28 chapters, so you can read the book in one week. I want you to do these things. I want you to think about this. Look at prayer, Holy Spirit, unity or community and the gospel. As you read, all I want you to do is to circle, to square, to star, highlight every time you either see these words or these subjects. Because these are threads that are weaved throughout the book of Acts and they tie it together so beautifully. And as you think about those threads and how God is moving and working, you can begin to see how those threads can work and move in our life. Now, in 10 weeks, you need to understand there is no way that we can fully cover all that there is in the book of Acts. So what we want to do is we want to begin to see and study these lessons from the early church and see how they have a direct application to our lives. Now, as we walk through these lessons, and anytime you step into a book, you have to kind of walk through the context. This, Every time I start a new sermon series, I get excited because we get to kind of step into the biblical world. We need to know about the audience, we need to know about the author, and we need to know about why the book was written. And so it's real simple. Acts kind of lays it all out for us. We believe, or, or scholars tell us, that the book of Acts was written by a gentleman by the name of Luke. Everybody say Luke. All right? So Luke, he was a physician. He was a physician, and we know that from Colossians 1, I think, four, I'm sorry, Colossians 4.14, it says that Luke was the beloved physician that traveled with Paul. Now, in the book of Luke and the book of Acts, these are the two books that are attributed to Luke, the physician. He is the one who wrote them. He wrote them 
from a Gentile perspective. Gentile is just a fancy way of saying, hey, they're, they're not Jewish. So they could be Roman. They could be any other ethnicity. They're just not Jewish. And so Luke, as a Gentile, wrote to Gentiles so that Gentiles could understand and see who God is in the midst of Luke and the book of Acts. Now, it was written to the Gentiles, but why was it written? I love how Luke straightforward Luke is because he just tells us. Look on the screen at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, Inasmuch have I undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me... Also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty uh, concerning the things that have been taught. Now, he continues in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, in the first book, referring back to the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until that day he was taken up and after he had been given the commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Luke, a physician, was writing to a a person named Theophilus. Say that three times. So you have this idea. Now, Theophilus... There's a contra- not controversy, but there's two different opinions on who Theophilus was. Number one, it was a guy whose name was Theophilus, which is translated means lover of God. Or it was a name, a singular name that was used to go to refer to other Gentile believers. Either way, Luke was working towards and writing this book so that Theophilus and other Gentile believers could be equipped and encouraged to live a life that is pleasing to the Father. Now, that's what we want for us over the next 10 weeks. We want to learn these lessons, put them in our hearts, so that we can live a life that is pleasing to the Father. Every single one of us are here. We have our own baggage, right? Anybody here got it all together? Good. We're in, I'm in good company. But what Scripture does is it provides for us an opportunity to to see and to learn from the past. And what I love about Luke is is he doesn't hide the struggles. He doesn't hide even the conflict that happens within the early church. And we're able to learn wonderful lessons so that we can live the life that He has called us to. That's where we're going in this series, Lessons from the Early Church. Now, what I want us to do now is we're going to step into this first lesson. And before we do that, I just want to stop and pray that God will begin to open up His Word to us and that we will respond to Him. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank You so much for Your love and mercy. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. Lord, I thank You for for men like Luke who faithfully wrote down what You inspired him to write down through the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I love how timeless your word is. And Lord, I pray for these young adults. Lord, I pray, Lord Jesus, that they will have an encounter with you tonight that will change them forever. Lord, those that are here, that are starting to 
to buckle under the weight of their burdens. Lord, I pray that they will be encouraged. Those that are here that do not know what's next, they know that they're nearing a time of transition, Lord, but they don't know what's next. Lord, I pray that you will give them what they need to take their next step that you are calling them to. Lord, those that are here that are far from you, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will bring them closer. And Lord, those that don't even have a relationship with you tonight, Lord, I pray that they will learn what it means to have faith in you. Bless the reading of your word. Speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, tonight what we want to do is we want to jump into our first lesson from the early church. Lesson one. Are you ready? God is faithful to fulfill His promises. God is faithful to fulfill His promises. Do me a favor. Go back to the not-so-distant past and go into your childhood. Everybody there? Your best self? Some of you really peaked like at 10 years old. I'm sorry, that was me, right? Some of you are, are you're thinking back eight, seven, whatever you are, think about your childhood and all the different things that happened in and through that. So think about some of the arguments or the discussions that you had with your friends as a child. Think about when you were trying to convince them that of something that was true to you, and you were trying your best to convince them that it is true, what would you end your argument with? I what? I heard somebody say, I what? I promise, right? You would you'd be passionately giving this argument or this reason or trying to convince them so much. They said, trust me, I promise. There's something about the power of a promise that makes people either perk up or you're trying to use it as a power. There's nothing magical or mystical about the words, I promise, but yet we will use it so many times to try to convince somebody that what we are saying is true to be true. Or some of you may be on the other end, you're trying to convince somebody of something that's not true to be true, and so you try to lie and use the word, I promise, right? None of y'all would ever do that, but that happens, right? So think about it. You... In the midst of your childhood, you would use the power of I promise to convince somebody of something because it meant that you were serious. What does a promise mean? So I asked the expert, Chat GPT, and this is what <laughs> Chat GPT said. He says, in a general sense, a promise is a commitment or assurance that someone or something will do or provide something in the future. It implies a guarantee or a declaration of intent to fulfill an obligation. I love it. It is a commitment or assurance that someone or something will do or provide something in the future. A guarantee or a declaration of intent, of obligation. I want to submit to you tonight. A promise is only as good as the promiser. If you are not trustworthy, it does not matter if you say, I promise. It does not matter how much you urge somebody if you are not trustworthy. But when God promises something, 
we know that he is able to guarantee what he said he would do. Amen? Are you grateful that you serve a God who is faithful to fulfill his promises? This is a truth that we as as his children have to learn. And tonight in the opening verses of Acts, we learn that our God is faithful to fulfill his promises. And tonight as we read Acts chapter 1 verses 1 through 11, we're going to see four truths that I believe that we can learn about God's promises. And I hope that these truths will encourage you. Look with me in Acts chapter 1, and we're going to learn this first truth. This first truth is this. A delayed promise is not an unfulfilled promise. A delayed promise is not an unfulfilled promise. Look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart, to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. See, we live in a culture that does not like to wait. The, the culture of instant gratification is just a part of our Western upbringing. It's just a part of who we are. We want stuff, really good stuff. We want it really fast. We want it really now. Now, think about this. And I know some of you are like, no, I'm not, I'm not that guy. I'm not, I don't want everything now. But let's just think about our lives. How many of you have come to appreciate Chick-fil-A's drive through process? It, it is a pretty miraculous thing. I was there last night, Tuesday, kids at free night. Get a lot of free chicken nuggets, but you have to buy stuff too. But it works, all right? So... But it's just amazing. We pulled up. We basically, within less than 10 minutes, I had my food. We were on our way home. And I'm like, this is, when you think about it, it works. It, it's really good. I believe, personally, they have perfected the art of the drive through service. But listen to this. Have you ever walked through and not had that type of experience, either at a Chick-fil-A or another establishment? Maybe one of their competitors. I don't know. Maybe the one that's right beside them on Germantown Parkway called Whataburger. Uh, I've, I've never eaten at Whataburger. I went through the drive-thru once, and I, re I rejected it. So um, we, it was one night. We were, we were with our, our uh, youngest daughter, Charlotte. She's awesome. If you haven't got to meet her, you'll, you'll get to meet her. She's awesome. And she said, uh, we said, hey, it's just us. What do you want? She said, I want a kid's meal from Whataburger. Why? We've never been to Whataburger. Why did she do it? And I found out her grandmother took her there. So anyway, so we're in the drive-thru line. We get to the end, and all we ask for is a kid's meal. A kid, that's it. And we're sitting there. And then I get the dreaded pull forward, please. And I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. And right in front of me, taunting me, is the Chick-fil-A drive-thru. 
just car after car after car, just going through. And in the midst of this, I am like, you know, a little ticked off. You know, I, I know I'm a pastor, I'm supposed to be holy, but you just start navigating all these emotions. I'm like, why is this taking so long? It is just a hamburger. And so in this middle of this thing, I have this, you know, moment where I'm like, I'm really upset about this. Why? And then when it comes to find out, you know, I had, do have a hamburger. I do have fries and a drink in less than maybe 20 minutes, maybe 25 minutes, a lot sooner than it would for me to be able to make it. It just was aggravating. I want what I want when I want it. And I don't want it after the I want it. I want it now. Can anybody attest to that or is that just me because I'm unholy? Do any of you remember dial-up internet connection? Like, I mean, old-style internet connection where you heard it, pick up the phone and start dialing. And we were amazed, even though it took three minutes to do something. It was like, look at this. This is awesome. Now we pull out our phones, and if our Google search doesn't pull up in less than half a second, we're, what's wrong? What's wrong? And we go crazy about these little things. And the last silly example I'll give you is what happened to you when Amazon Prime stopped delivering in two days during the pandemic. You're like, what am I paying for, right? They ship someone from halfway across the world in three days and you're mad, right? I just want you, that's the culture that we live in. Now listen, what's unfortunate for us is that many times we transfer that instant gratification into our walk with Christ. And what we want, we want it now. We want growth without the struggle. We want victory without the battle. And we want rewards without the work. But listen, young adults, listen. Unfortunately, the economy of God does not usually work that way. Sometimes the Lord tells us to wait. Look at verse 4 again. It says, And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me. See, in this verse, Jesus ordered them not to depart, and He commanded them to stay put to wait. Now, when you look at the original text and you start to dive into this word, this Greek word that's translated wait, it's, it's defined as wait. Yeah, y'all were expecting something just that's kind of anticlimactic, right? This whole idea of wait means wait. It means just sit, stay put, sit still, just wait. Stop. Even now, some of you are getting uncomfortable. Jesus said, wait. Don't go anywhere. See, we need to understand that an unfulfilled, uh, a delayed promise is not an unfulfilled promise. Maybe God has you in a season of wait. That's what it means. There's nothing fancy about wait. But what, what are they waiting for? Luke chapter 24 
Verse 49 says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Luke 14, 16 says, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus was commanding the disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit that they would that would soon be with them. But this gift that God and Jesus was telling him to, them to wait for was far from their minds. How do I know that? Look at verse 6. It says, So when they had come together, now they had been with Jesus for 40 days, and he said, Don't leave the city, stay here. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, the promise that Jesus was thinking about was the promise of the Holy Spirit, but it was not the promise that the disciples were wanting fulfilled. See, they've walked through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. They went through losing Him, thinking all that was lost. And then this great victorious resurrection. And in their Jewish mind, they knew Now is the time that Christ, Messiah, will start His kingdom. Everything had been set. Everything had been working through. This was not the first time that the Jewish people tried to make Jesus king. John chapter 6, verses 14 through 15 says this. When the people, this is after the feeding of the 5,000. It says, when the people saw the sign that they had done, he said, that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who come, who who is to come into the world, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Look at that. Immediately following the feeding of the 5,000, he fed them miraculously and they were ready to make him king. He provided for them and they wanted him to provide for them in this earthly realm and to be their king. If you go back and you look in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is fulfilling all of these Old Testament prophecies that are saying He is to be king. Isaiah 11 speaks about it. It says, Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of our Lord. Does that sound like Jesus? Go on to verse 10 of that same chapter. It says, Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. They wanted Jesus to be their earthly king and what Jesus tells them is real simple. He says, not yet. Look at verse 7 in Acts chapter 1. He says, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. See, the promise of Jesus fulfilling the role of an earthly king that rules all nations was delayed for a moment, but the disciples failed to see was that Jesus is king and he is reigning in the hearts 
of His children. I just want to stop right there. Does that describe you today? Would you say that Jesus is reigning in your heart as king? That means that He has sovereign rule over your life. When a king says something, what happens? Do you obey or disobey? Obey or disobey? Y'all can talk back. You do it. Any questions asked? Any back talk? Would you be willing to say that Jesus Christ is king of my heart? That there is nothing in your life that you have not given to Him and if He told you to leave it, that you would leave it. If He told you to take it, that you would take it. See, sometimes we want Jesus to be earthly king, but we don't want Him to be king over our lives. Think about that. Is He the king of your heart? See, God is faithful to fulfill His promises even when the fulfillment does not occur when or how we want it to. Are you here tonight and you are, are you discouraged in some form or fashion because of what's going on in your life? Young adults, listen. Are you brokenhearted? I don't know your story. I don't know what you're walking through, but are you here today and would you say, Ben, I am brokenhearted? Be encouraged. Take courage. Listen to Psalm 34. Verses 17 through 18. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Say, the Lord is near for me. The Lord is near to who? The brokenhearted. If you are here tonight, this is a promise from God's word. If you are brokenhearted, the Bible says that the Lord is near you. Are you here tonight and you would say that you feel like you are just struggling in your walk with Christ? You know Christ is the standard and you know what you're trying to be, but when you measure it up, you just fall short and you walk away shameful and guilty and all those negative emotions. Would you say like, Ben, I'm just not getting it. I'm not making it right. Take courage. Listen to the promises of God's word. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Say, new creation for me. The old things have what? And behold, new things have what? Let that sit in just for a minute. You may be here and you're like, man, my past, it's just keeping me from moving forward. Why do we sit in the past when God says what? I'm a new what? In who? Christ. If you have a relationship with Christ, why do you allow the enemy to heap guilt upon guilt and shame upon shame when the Word of God promises that you are a new creation? That's not even all, guys. Go to, I mean, Philippians 1.6. I love this. Paul is writing to the church of Philippians. He says, I am certain that God who began a good work within you will continue His work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. I love this. This is good. 
If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to think about this. You are a good work that God has started. Does that mean that you're where you're supposed to be? Most likely not. But does that mean that God is going to continually work in you to get you where you want to be? Until when? Until it's completed. You know what I love about that? (laughs) God's not going to give up on me. I fail God all the time. But the fact that I'm a new creation and the fact that that God's not going to give up on me encourages me because that's His Word. Even though I don't, it's not being fulfilled in the time frame that I want it to be fulfilled in, I can lean in on this promise. See, the enemy wants you to live in defeat. God wants you to live in victory. Think about this. Maybe you're here tonight and you're lonely. You feel abandoned for whatever reason. Take courage. Listen to God's word. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor what? Forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we say confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You're here lonely. You feel abandoned for whatever reason. God says He will never leave you nor forsake you. That is a promise that God can fulfill for you tonight. See, what happens is is the enemy keeps us from going to God's Word and learning His promises because when we don't learn His promises, we don't know what we can claim as His children. And these are just a few and three circumstances. Whatever you're dealing with, Go to the Word of God and ask God to give you a promise that you can hold on to. So you need to understand that a promise delayed is not an unfulfilled promise. These disciples wanted wanted Jesus to be their earthly king. And He says, not yet, but something better is coming. The second truth that we want to learn tonight is this. A proclaimed promise will become reality. Look at verses 7 and 8. And He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus is clear with his, his disciples that the promise of the restored kingdom of Israel is coming, but not yet. However, another promise is about to become a reality. I love the fact that God doesn't even use the word promise here. He just uses will. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. When God says will, you can guarantee that it's going to happen. This is real clear when you look. It's just future tense. This is something that is coming in the future, and for them, it was about to become a reality that they were going to receive power and that they were going to be witnesses. I want you to to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. You hear these words and you apply it directly to yourself. You say, okay, I receive power from the Holy Spirit and I will be 
Jesus' witness from my hometown to the parts of the world I've never heard of, this thought in and of itself can be overwhelming. And I immediately go into doubt. Lord, are you calling me to be a witness to, to my Jerusalem, to my Judea, to my Samaria, to, to the outermost parts of the world? Can you do that in me? And what I love is that he's not calling us something to do something or promising that we will be something that he doesn't provide for us the power with which to do it. So, yes, he says, you will be my witnesses, but he also says, I will give you power. Like, you have the power of the Holy Spirit, and because you have the power of the Holy Spirit, you are supposed to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. I love Romans 8, verses 8 through 11. It says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to me. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life because of righteousness, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit that dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If you are a child of God tonight, you have the Spirit of God in you. And I love how Luke, and in this setting, Jesus, He connects the power of the Holy Spirit to the mission of the church. Have you ever been given a job or a task to do at work that you did not have all the resources to accomplish? Like you have a boss that just doesn't understand what you're supposed to be doing and, and he tells you to do something, but you don't have all the pieces to the puzzle. There's no way you can make it happen. See, I think about my son, Gray. Gray's 12 years old. Finally, yes, he's old enough to start helping out with yard work. Any of, anybody had to do that when you got that age? It's just part of life. It, think about me working with Gray and say, hey, Gray, I need you to go mow the grass. And that's all I tell him to do. I don't give him a lawnmower. I don't tell him, hey, this is how you need to start it out. This is what you need to do in order to make this happen. I don't give him anything. I just say, hey, go mow the grass. What's going to happen? He's going to maybe try. He's going to fail. He's going to get frustrated. And in, what happens in the end, he just quits. Now, what if I say, Greg, I'll mow the grass. Here's the lawnmower. But I don't give him any gas. He tries. He's pushing something around. It's just not going. He's confused. So I give him the tools that he needs, but yet I did not give him the, fu the fuel that he needed in order for him to accomplish that which I told him to do. Now, what happens when I give him the, the gas the lawnmower and the skills and the example to follow so that he knows how to do the work that I've asked him to do. What happens? He's successful, right? Whatever success in mowing the grass means, right? But he's able to do that which I've told him to do because he had all that he needed. Now, I'm not that good of a dad, 
And I know that I need to set my son up for success. We have a perfect father. Now listen, why would he tell you to go be my witnesses and not give you an example to follow and not give you the fuel or the power that you need to accomplish that which he's called you? Do you think that would be a very good God or a very good father? Yes or no? It's not, is it? But Jesus does. See, He has provided the tools, His Word. He has provided the example, His Son, Jesus. And He has given us the power to do the work, the Holy Spirit, to accomplish the task of being His witnesses to the ends of the earth. See, we will have to work hard but we can serve confidently knowing that He has provided everything we need to do the job that He has given us. So when I look at this promise, this idea that if God gives us a promise, it will become a reality. If He tells us that you will be witnesses, what's going to happen in your life? You're going to be what? Witnesses. It ties into who we are supposed to be. And He gives us the power that we can do it. So because God is faithful to fulfill His promises and and we can live in these truths, like a delayed promise is not an unfulfilled promise. You need to remember that. And a proclaimed promise will become reality. The third truth that we're going to learn tonight is this. And we're going to walk through these quickly. A promise can provide purpose. I love what he says here. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, that the power of the Holy Spirit will come and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the outermost parts of the world. Now think about this. How does it not tie to the command that he gives in the Gospels of the Great Commission? Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, it says, says, go therefore and what? Make disciples. He goes on, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You tie this promise that, hey, you will be witnesses to this command You are to go and make disciples. And what we have is we have a purpose for our life. See, go back to what I mentioned earlier. The early church were just normal people called by an awesome God. Their relationship with Christ gave them purpose. Do you live for that same purpose? See, so many times we get caught up in our own mess and we're not living out the purpose that God has called us to. Now, see, this is where it always gets tricky. When I start talking like this, automatically half the crowd cuts me out because they say, well, I'm not called to, to the ministry. I'm not, going, I'm not called to be a missionary. I'm not called to be a missionary. Great. Does that keep you from fulfilling what 
God said you will be as his child. He said you will be my what? Witnesses. Does that mean that you don't get the power of the Holy Spirit because you just choose that you don't need to be his witnesses? You're going to get God's power because you're a believer and you're going to be witnesses because you're a believer. Now, you're either a good one or you're a bad one, but you're going to be one, right? Quick survey. How many people in here are called to the ministry? Okay, we got, I see two, I think, three, four. All right. How many people are not called to the ministry that you're going to get your full-time vocational living from the church? Raise your hands. Okay, guys, there, there has to be more. There's only three. Okay, work with me. I'm trying to, if you're not called to the ministry, raise your hand really high for me, please. All right. So we've got some people just thinking about it. That's awesome. <laughs> Think about this. There's a whole lot more people that are not called to the ministry than there are the people that are called to the ministry. Do you think the world will be reached by pastors and missionaries? Or do you think the world will be reached by all believers, no matter what they do for a living? All believers. You have a purpose. And that purpose is to be his witness. Are you a good one? Or are you a bad one? The last truth we need to learn is this. A promise can give hope. A promise can give hope. Look with me in the last few verses that we're covering tonight. Verse 9 says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him. Out of their sight, this is the ascension of Jesus. And when they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And he, they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin. He was buried. On the third day, He rose again. And after 40 days, He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And what does this verse tell us? That He will do what? He will come back again. We can have hope because Jesus is coming back. Simple. When we look at the promises of God, just in this passage, we learn that an un, an, a delayed promise is not an unfulfilled promise. We learn that a promise will become reality when it's God who is making the promise. We learn that a promise gives us purpose and a promise gives us hope. I started off by saying I submit to you that a promise is only as good as the promiser. Do you trust the promiser, Jesus Christ? See, all of these promises are for God's children. And if you're here tonight and you would say, Ben, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not a child of God. These promises aren't for me. What would it look like for you 
to receive Jesus Christ tonight. The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Have you come to the place in your life where you have repented of your sins? You've turned from your sins and you've turned to Jesus. You believe that Jesus Christ is who He says He is, the Son of God, the one who died for you, the one who was buried and rose again for you. And have you received Him as your Lord and Savior? See, if you're here tonight and you say, that's not me, tonight can be your night of salvation. Maybe you're here tonight and and you're walking in defeat because you are not living in the reality of God's promises. What promise do you need from God tonight? It's in His Word. Are you finding it in His Word? Man, what would it look like if we started to live in the confidence of God's Word, knowing that I will be a witness for Him, knowing that I will be given the power of the Holy Spirit? Man, that's so strong because of who Jesus is.